לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 1023 מרגישים קיץ באוויר Shalom everyone and welcome to Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elian Malamed, speaking to you from Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski from Hergesh Anshay Chesed in New York City and Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Solomon Schechter of Long Island. And it's great to see you guys. Shalom. 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 It's good By to way, see you. I did just ascertain. Yes. If, if there were no COVID, camp would have gone on through August 19th. So, oh, so, so two Shabbos. Two more, two more Shabbatot for the theoretical. Is the second game. last Shabbat or the, yeah. the second to last? Second last Shabbat. The last Shabbat would be Re'e, which, which, I mean, these, these Parshas are actually, uh, you know, in, in normal years, they're, they're a little later. At least the last few years they've been later. We haven't done these at camp. Uh, so they're new for us, although, although this Parsha, I think, we, we do plenty of times. Uh, this is Parsha Ekev. Ekev is a fascinating Parsha, dealing with a lot of the themes that we have, or we are coming to know from this book of Deuteronomy, and, um, and specifically focused on the land, which we'll talk about uh, shortly. Um, I want to uh, just begin by, by thinking with you about um, a couple of things. You know, in the first aliyah of this Parsha, we have a pasuk that is familiar to uh, all of us, especially if we recite the Birkat HaMazon. So the Birkat HaMazon verse is, Ve'achalta v'savata uve'rachta et Adonai Elohecha ala aretz Right? This is the, um, the, 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 the verse that is part of the Birkat HaMazon, and, and this is the, the verse that is... Um, the, the basis for the blessing, and this is, of course, familiar to many of our uh, people. But this comes out there after a whole description of the land. So let me just take a second to, to read this. Ki Adonai el God is bringing us to a good land. Eretz a land of brooks, streams, ayanot, utomot, fountains, yotzim babikab uvahar, gushing from the mountains and from the valleys. And now, Eretz Chita Usora, the Gefen Utena Verimon, a land of wheat and barley, of the, of the grape, of the fig, of the pomegranate, Eretz Zet Shemen Udvash, a land of olive oil and honey. Eretz Asher Loba Miskenut Tochabalechen, you won't lack for bread there, you won't lack for anything, Eretz Asher Avanel Barzel, You'll have a land there. You're going into the land. This is uh, chapter 8. And this verse is uh, depicted on many, many pieces of art. It's a very popular uh, verse. Um, what is Moses trying to do here? What is he trying to say to the people? What kind of uh, reaction is he supposed to get from people here as he's speaking to them about the land? Barry, you want to... So I, I think it's... Um... A reminder that life is going to change dramatically. That in the wilderness, they've been sustained by man, which is, as we mentioned before we started recording, 
God's miracle food that he bestows upon the Israelites. And they're about to come to a land that is extraordinarily beautiful, however different it is from Egypt, and that can sustain the people if they're willing to work for it. In fact, so, so we, we were speaking about the idea that mana represents a certain stage of development uh, for the people and that, and that having your own food or creating your own food or, or working for your own food suggests uh, a maturation of the people. Do we see well, that? on two levels. It's a maturation of the people because farming is for adults, but it's also civilizing. Right? Culture begins with agriculture. And it's important to recognize that civilization only develops material civilization when we can settle down and grow our own food and have a culture that we can build on site, as it were. And so it's, it's interesting you, you focus on that because part of biblical culture in agriculture includes the response to the food, which is v'achalta v'savata v'irachta. Blessing. You have to bless God, thank, be thankful for God. And this is going to be a, a, real important, a really important theme here because the idea is that you can take things for granted, that, that it, you, you think it's, it's, it just comes to you, right? The, the, book of, uh, the book of Deuteronomy in many places has this attitude that... Um, that too much affluence and too much power correlates to a spiritual misguidedness. It, co it correlates to forgetfulness of God's grace and, and correlates to a, a puffed up attitude. And you'll say, as this partial will say, uh, uh, it's because I am so successful and I am so powerful, that's why I have an abundant life. And the, the Deuteronomy and certainly Judaism, you know, Begadol, not just this one text, uh, views that with grave suspicion. It thinks that it thinks that that too much affluence is a kind of produces a kind of laziness and arrogance, as opposed to a, an ethic of servitude and gratitude. Um, so manna comes out to be, as as uh, we said before that we began the call, a kind of ambivalent symbolism. On the one hand, it's great, it's terrific. God provides you. On the other hand, that infantilizes you, and the maturation, the, the one food that is like mother's milk, and, the, and, and in the book of Numbers, it ex explicitly uh, refers to it in, in the kind of mother's milk um, you know, vocabulary. Uh, so it's, it's great food, but it's baby food. The, the adult food is agriculture. You have to earn food by the uh, uh, sweat of your brow. But... If you're too good at that, that's its own problem, and you get you get too arrogant. So you have to be brought down a peg and uh, cultivate a sense of gratitude towards God. So there need there's there needs to be a set of checks and balances in in your theological disposition towards towards life. That is to say, uh, some things God will be gracious to you and give you. Uh, you can't expect everything, and when you get them, you need to be grateful for them. And, and uh, if we can just take this into the halachic realm, uh, there's the interesting discussion halachically in terms of uh, what is the minimum quantity of food that requires Birkhan You recall this, this conversation, right? 
So it's what Kazai. It's it's it's, hey, it's one of the seven species, <laughs> right? The, the, meaning that even if you were to eat a minimal amount, the, the uh, olive bulk's worth, you would be required to recite Birkat Hamazon, or seen in another way, which is the Jewish people is so grateful that even for an olive bulk's worth of food, they recite you know ten minutes of Birkat Hamazon. This is this is the this is the great, Thomas' great line is that um, that. Actually, God says, "Viachalta v'savata uverachta." You don't have God says you don't have to say "Viachalta" unless you really feel satisfied. But oh, and in the in the Talmud's phrase, you gotta love the Jewish people. <laughs> they're so they're, they 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 express gratitude even for kazayat. Yeah, right. Well, because I think that we have to remember that being satisfied doesn't mean overeating or being engorged. You need enough room to recognize that you're satisfied as well. And I wanted to mention that the conversation reminds me of the, the two main blessings that we have at our Shabbat meal are Kiddush and Hamotzi, which are the two blessings that we recite thanking God for creating the wine and the bread, even though they require human beings. Right? You can't grow wine or grow bread in the field. You have to make them. And the blessing reminds us that despite our hard work, God is the author of creation, and we have to recognize that even when we've produced what's on our table. Interesting. I just want to add to that, just the idea that, that both of those uh, blessings, the wine and the bread, uh, are, are two-thirds of, of, of three major foods that connect us to the land of Israel. Digancha, tiroshcha, v'yitzarecha, which we recognize from the Shema and other places, right? Your, your bread, your wine, and your oil um, and these, um, the oil is represented by the lights on the candlelight. So, your bread, motzi, tiroshcha, your wine, the yitar, oil, oil represented by the candle. And, and, and all three of them, as you said, Barry, I, you know, are, are products of human behavior, of, of human industry as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, we, we have in the Parsha also, um, Let's jump to, to, to chapter 10 for a second, um, because this, this uh, I think, inspires a, a lot of discussion. Um, uh, it's a turning point in the, in the speech, and Moses is saying, so now, Israel, what is God asking of you? What, what only is he asking of you? Nothing well, big. <laughs> nothing big, except just to, to have reverence, to fear God. To go in all his ways, to, to love God. With all your heart, with all your soul. So the question is, um, is that something small? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, what does he ask you? What's he asking you? Only to do this. <laughs> so I want to suggest a slightly different translation. Uh, you know, the, the vav doesn't always mean um, and. So the way I like to read it is that you have to fear God so that you walk in his ways, and you have to love him so that you can worship him. Nice. That if we don't love God, then we can't worship him authentically. And that's another one of the great themes of the book of Devarim. So let me just get that. I wanted to say it again because because it's it's a it's a good chiddush on this text. 
walk us through that. So we, we have to fear God, not for its own sake, but so that we can walk in God's ways. Once we see God for what God is, then we can begin to emulate him as best a human being can do. Mm-hmm. And only if we love him can we properly worship him. And, you know, there's this tension throughout, as you both know, through rabbinic thought as well, between fear and love of God. You know, the high holidays are coming up. You know, it's a day off for me, thank God. Um, but for you, you know, it, it's one of the great things of the day. Um, well, I, 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 I can hear members of my congregation arguing with that and saying, but wait a minute. You, you don't have to necessarily fear God to do mitzvot. You don't have to necessarily love God to engage in worship. I mean, many of us uh, and many of the people that we know are engaged in Jewish life and Jewish practice um, without that necessarily important and elemental theological connection. Um, and, and, and for many people, you know, even saying, love God and do his mitzvot, you know, is difficult. They, they'll say, look, I can, I can do the, I can do, Shabbat makes sense. I can do Shabbat, but leave, leave the loving God part out. Yeah, but that's, that's a little bit like, I would say, you know, that, that's a little bit like, well, you can play a guitar that only has, you know, five strings attached, but, you know, you can play music on, a, on an out-of-tune instrument, uh, and I suppose it's true, but you can't play it really well without this other right. element. I mean, I, I, don't, I certainly want to be judgmental. Um, everybody has their own strengths, um, you know, in, in, the, in their own repertoire of being a Jew, things that they're really great at and things that they struggle with. And so I don't presume to, to judge other people's spirituality. I do think that the ideal for what it, we're shooting for is pervaded by action and orientation as a mental and a spiritual element and that it includes the those two themes of love and awe and that it produces actual behavior so with with that i'd like to just say what about a line that comes immediately following or one or two verses later um and and i think it's really very relevant because in in chapter 10 verse uh what is that 16 it says, And you shall circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And don't stiffen your neck again. Don't, don't be uh, stubborn and resistant. And, and in this religion, the one that we practice, and our sister religion, uh, which is also a product of ancient Judaism, um, the circumcision of the heart is really, really important. And, and Paul in the book of Romans, he says, you know, basically the Jews circumcised their bodies, but this verse says that, Paul thought, um, this verse says that God doesn't really care so much about your bodies, God cares about your heart. And so it'd be, Paul's, you know, in, in the Christian scriptures, Paul's got a polemic against normative behavior and in favor of something more ephemeral like love and and a, 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 a so to speak spirit of the law that is not identified with the, with the practice of the law I think as a Jew obviously I think spirit and love are important um, but I think as a Jew 
the circumcision of the of the heart uh, is is um, while very very uh, obviously very very significant. It's not instead of the circumcision of the body. They have to go together in the exact way that Barry just said that if you have love, it produces deeds of worship. It produces avodah. If you have awe, it produces walking in God's ways. Jews think that we have a spirit of the law, but you only obtain the spirit of the law through the letter of the law. It's got to be a match of the two of them together. Why, why such an audacious uh, metaphor? Uh, it, it does seem to be quite um, uh, uh, star, uh, startling. Um, and, and uh, you know, how would you, how would you even begin to explain this? I, I, I did hear one lovely explanation, which is, umaltem uh, is to unveil, that is to say, to, to remove the barrier. And, and when we explain this on those terms, uh, we are talking about relationship. And so uh, in the, and, and this kind of dovetails again with what Barry said, you know, there, there are plenty of blockages between our relationship with God. After all, you know, there, in, in Isaiah, solo, solo, pano there, you know, you know, pave the highway, cre- create the highway, clear it out. Uh, the, the, the relationship between human beings and God can be strewn with all sorts of impediments and, and, and blockages. Um, and, that's because, and that's because our hearts, uh, I mean, w- without getting too graphic about what they conceived of circumcising uh, the male genitals, but th- they, th- they thought that there was a kind of, of outer shell that blocked uh, the fullness of the person. And so you have to cut it away and open yourself up. Ramban was a capitalist and therefore kind of inherits a language of, of this is, that that circumcise your heart means your heart has to be open to know the truth. Do you so know there, there there is actually a membrane around the heart called the pericardium, and um, but you don't want to cut it. You you don't, it protects the heart. However, in 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 people who have transplants, one of which I know quite well, uh, you know about that. There there. They don't have a pericardium because in order to remove the heart and transplant the heart, uh, you have to remove it out of the pericardium. Uh, and, um, and there are people who suffer from pericarditis, the inflammation of, the, of that membrane. So, so I often wonder in reading this, it's, it's not exactly just a metaphor. I mean, I am assuming that our ancestors knew one thing or two about Human anatomy. They may not have dissected cadavers, but uh, maybe they've seen. They saw a pericardium and said, "You know, that's their problem. They have too much of a barrier." So, the, the, what I would like to add here is that the the modern spin, of course, is that by saying "umaltem we open it to women as well, yeah. because everyone has a heart. Interesting. Interesting. And the community in Devarim is sometimes a male community but sometimes includes the women and children as well. So here at least it opens up the possibility that God is talking to everyone. The other thing that came to mind is that the heart is in the front, as is the male genitalia, and the, the OREF is the back. And that in order to approach God, you have to be facing God, as it were, with your person. And as we know, the heart is 
not just the heart as we understand it today, but for the, the rabbis and, and the biblical period was the brain as well. It was your, the center of your being. And that has to be open, I think, as Jeremy beautifully put it before. And we don't want to turn our back on God. That's when things get hard, you know, hence the stiff neck. I want to just go back to, to the question um, that uh, Deuteronomy has. It's Moshe's question, Ma Adonai Elohecha Shoel Mach, what does God ask of you? And, and of course, you know, we, we all have a biblical ear attuned to other key passages. And, and the first passage that we recall is the passage from, from Micha. Uh, what does God want for you? And, and Micha's answer is a, is a very, very different answer from the answer that Moshe has provided. Micha's answer is, Asot mishpat, do justice, avat chesed, love mercy, lechet, and walk humbly with your God. So, uh, uh, can we say, is Micha on the same page as Moshe? Is Micha arguing with Moshe? Is Micha in a continuum with Moshe? I would say is it the same, is it? that they, I would say they're playing the same kind of music, but maybe with slightly different tones. When Moshe says, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going, I'm going to from here on in go with the Chesler translation, because I think that's just a perfect capture of, uh, of what goes on here, that, that awe produces walking in the ways and love produces worship or service. When, when Moshe says that you have to walk in God's ways, uh, you have to imitate God, you might think of that famous rabbinic passage, Mahu rachum rachum, Mahu rachum, and and Re'evim, as as God is feeding the hungry and 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 uh, visiting the sick and doing kindness, so so too you should be. And so Micha has a tone of that, and um, yeah, and so I think that they are roughly the same. Micha is perhaps a teeny bit more explicit in uh, the social dimension of the kindness towards others and doing justice in human in human contact. Uh, but I think that they're roughly the same kinds of messages. Barry, you want to take a... Yeah, I was going to say just maybe a difference in vocabulary due to the time difference. You know, it's a, Michal is in a different period. People speak in a slightly different idiom. It seems very close to me to be the same thing. What does appear, though, is that here in Devarim, the individual is addressed. And in Micha, I think one gets the sense in part that the community is addressed. That it's the community that has to love justice and the community that has to demonstrate mercy because they don't work if only individuals do it. Well, quite, no, it, could, it could be the opposite in the following way. Moshe says, Ve'ata Yisrael ma Adunai Elohecha shoel mi'imach. And Misha's, Micha says, that one may be a message for Jewish people and one for human beings. Okay. Jewish human beings. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> no, but, but so see, he's saying, look, Jews, that I'm talking to you, you know, be, be a mensch. Yeah. That, that's the major, you know, and of course in, the, in rabbinic literature, this, this text from Micha is one of the one of the key texts 
you know, can the Torah, can all of, you know, Judaism be reduced into, into certain phrases? Yeah, Micha reduced it into three. He said that this is the ultimate love, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. You can see it on the... You know, I, I, would, I would say also, by the way, this goes back, Elliot, to, to what you were saying about, and we certainly all know people who, who appreciate Jewish culture without, without the kind of manifestly theological or religious dimensions. Uh, I do think that the, the Torah and its in her, in, interpreters throughout the centuries have sought to shape a religious personality. And, and I think Micha, um, maybe, maybe his formulation more than Moshe's formulation, or, or maybe not, maybe, maybe it's just a little different, but Moshe's formulation is be a reverent and loving person, and Micha's formulation is do the right thing and have virtues of kindness and modesty and, and humility. And, and I just think that Micha's formulation, man, it's just, it's so... It's very stirring to me. Yeah. Do the right thing and be the right kind of person. Be, be loving and be humble. I'm not sure. Does, does Moshe's language work? Uh, you know, because obviously Micha's language is something that we can gravitate to much more easily. And, and the question that you're asking is, you know, what kind of human being is being fashioned here? How is the text trying to fashion us? And Moshe is trying to fashion us as you know, a, a reverent but obedient uh, person. And, and Micha is, I would say, he's trying to fashion us in terms of humble. Mm -hmm. Micha, right. in, that, in that prophetic way, um, you know, Micha, Micha is among, the, uh, the, among those prophets like Isaiah, who, you know, kind of ridicules all the sacrifices. Uh, I happen to know this one because it was my bar mitzvah haftarah, um, that you know, he says, uh, you know, what do, what do, what do I need? Do I need uh, forests full of of firewood? Do I need rivers full of oil? Do I need all herds full of of uh, animals to sacrifice? I don't need any of that stuff. I need this kind of personality, and you know, speaking in God's voice. So Micha is that kind of prophet who maybe has a little bit of a skeptical attitude towards some of the outward manifestations and favors some more of the in, inner manifestations, which is of course not really true of Moshe, right. who spends a lot of time about the outward manifestations. Interesting. So the other thing is that with Moshe, you have to consider who he's talking to. The problem that characterized B'nai Israel in the Midbar is that they didn't listen. So obedience is obviously a principal concern. In the time of Micha, the people are already established in the land and the social fabric is being undone by people who claim to be religious. And you can't, you know, I think Ramban's expression was the fool within the law. You can't follow the law and be either an Amaris, an ignoramus, or someone who's unethical. You know, it's that the combination of the two that makes, as Jeremy was saying earlier, the religious personality that we strive to be. It's not the choosing one or the other. So we would be remiss in the, in the moments that are remaining to us if we didn't talk about the second paragraph of the Shema, which is in, located in this uh, Parsha, it's chapter 11, verse 13 and on. The, if you hearken to my mitzvot. Um, and, and this chapter, this paragraph of the Shema, basically 
lists out what's going to ensue. You'll be rewarded if you follow. You'll be punished if you don't follow. You'll be able to have your reign in season. Uh, you'll have uh, you'll have plenty of food, your animals will have food, and you will eat, and you will be satisfied. But if you don't, if you besart them, God will be angry. So are we seeing a snapshot of the development of Jewish theology here in the way that it's relating to God? Jeremy, you're nodding, so... I, I do. The, this, the second paragraph of the Shema is, as... Uh our listeners probably know, you know, takes this very strong reward and punishment kind of uh, approach that um, can be a little hard to swallow. I mean, uh, our, our listeners might know that in the, I guess it was the 1940s, uh, in the, when Mordechai Kaplan published the Sidur, and the, you know, when Reconstructionism at that time was sort of a trend within conservatism, not, not its own independent movement, and the Siddur took the second paragraph of the Shema out yeah. and replaced it, replaced yeah. it with, with other texts because he said we simply can't say with a straight face that God makes it rain. Um, but that, that line that if, if you, you know, turn your heart and worship other gods, um, then God will be enraged with you. And close up the heavens. Pshat, simple semantic meaning, it seems to mean that there won't be any rain and you'll have a drought. But I just, I find that such an incredibly poetic phrase, heaven will be closed off to you. I think that there's a kind of a religious, spiritual connection that you have when you worship God, that if you go worshiping false gods, heaven is closed off to you. You, it's, it's, you don't have that experience uh, by dint of your uh, attachment to, to false gods, by your, the false gods of money and sex and power and all the things that people love nowadays. Uh, not just nowadays, uh, throughout all time. Um, so I, I do feel like we are, it, it's almost like we're getting a message uh, from the, you know, however many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah, this is what people at this particular moment in time find m meaningful. Uh, this is the kind of relationship to God and, and picture of God that people uh, in, in, in the Midbar could find meaningful um, in a way that, can be a little hard going for contemporary well, people. Wait, you know, it, it's it's oh, analogous to to analogous to what we talked about the barriers, the human barriers to God. It's God saying, "Look, you know, if 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 you're going to worship other gods, there'll be a barrier between me and the, and and you." And that that's, I mean, when a, when we are engaged in reciting the Shema, we are entering that world where this is reality. So, let me into that. Go ahead, Barry. There's a great existential question. What kind of universe do we live in? Yeah. And the claim of our ancestors, up until relatively recently, is that we lived in a moral universe where the universe responded to human moral behavior. The existentialists, which is what makes it an existential question, believed in an indifferent universe, that the universe doesn't care about us. And I think in some ways, philosophically, a lot of people find that appealing, but we want to live in a world where the universe does respond to us. One of the great political issues of our day is climate change and how the earth responds to human behavior. So I think that there is still great meaning in the second paragraph of the Shema, 
because our actions have consequences. It may not be it have to do with the rain, although acid rain, as I recall, was one of the big issues not so long ago. But it does have to do with fashioning the world that we live in and being a partner with God and creating that world. You know, as our ancestors taught, we're partners with God in creation, and you have to have a kind of universe that responds to human behavior to be that partner. Indeed, the, the, the universe that Moshe is trying to construct here for us is a, is a universe in which God does respond, and God will provide both the, the material sustenance that you depend on uh, and that you, by not just being obedient, you know, obedient to God. It's not asking for obedience, but it, but it's to be in a relationship with God in a full, in a full, the fullness of that relationship, which can consist of all the the emotional colors that we're all familiar with. Um, so, in a way, this 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 text, you know, it belongs in the Shema because it, it enables us to enter a world of accountability and enables us to enter a world in which we we are thinking about this relationship. So, I would just add one thing that. We need a relationship with God, but our relationship with God is dependent upon our relationship with the world as well. Now, we can't separate the two. We can't behave one way with God and then somehow differently with the world. And what the second paragraph of the Shema reminds us is that God needs the world too. And he also responds. You have to, and what you just said is very, really um, inspiring because... Uh, you shall be, you shall have integrity. Let's call it that way. Translate that way. A person has to have integrity. You can't behave one way with the physical world and then expect a different kind of spiritual relationship with God. And similarly with, with your fellow human beings, you have to be, um, you have to have a kind of, um, of integrity and tamimut, purity uh, in all the areas of your life for this religious path to really work. So here we, we've, we've, we've come to the end of our time together with, uh, with this Parsha. I think there's, there's just so much to think about. It's, it's a Parsha of relationship, a Parsha of the land. Um, but at, at, at its core, it's, it's a Parsha that engages us in, in thinking and imagining just the way that it has engaged the three of us. We, we are all in our different places as usual, um, thinking back and recalling, you know, seventh and eighth weeks of, of the summer. Um, and telling and, and, and with our, our uh, loyal listeners and, and viewers who, uh, who got the price of admission today uh, for the, the beautiful insights of my wonderful colleagues, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, Rabbi Barry Chesler. And on their behalf, I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman. I want to thank you and wish everyone Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.